Autism is a neurological disorder that can dramatically affect a person's ability to communicate and interact with others. It's a lifelong condition, even though many associate it with young children. Many people view autism as a childhood condition, and that once you get to teenagers, they're done, and that's definitely not the case. In fact, there's different challenges that are unique to those periods that we really need to think about. On today's show, we'll look at some of those challenges among teens and young adults with autism, and their increased risk for mental health conditions like anxiety and depression due to their social isolation. You realize, hey, I don't have any friends. That's the mental health risk. That awareness is a risk factor. These social challenges are very pervasive and very impactful. And later, we'll give you an update on the Periscope Project and their involvement in the upcoming National Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week. We're encouraging every healthcare provider that sees pregnant and postpartum women to ask questions about her mental health because you don't know how somebody's feeling just by looking at them. That's all coming up inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Bellmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Being a teenager or young adult presents many challenges. Today, in addition to the biological changes of adolescence, there's the pressure of coming of age in this fast-paced digital age, where things like social media add a dimension of having virtual relationships and social interactions on top of one's daily face-to-face social interactions with friends and peers. So imagine for a moment being a teen or young adult with autism spectrum disorder, where every day is a challenge to communicate and interact socially with others, especially with people your own age, leading to social isolation and, in many cases, mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, and, in extreme cases, even suicide. Dr. Amy Vaughn Van Hecke is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and the Director of the Marquette Autism Clinic at Marquette University. She's done extensive research into autism spectrum disorder and risk factors associated with autism, especially among teens and young adults. We spoke with Dr. Van Hecke recently to learn more about both. We began our conversation by having Dr. Van Hecke explain, in general, what autism spectrum disorder is. Autism spectrum disorder is a developmental condition. It affects your social communication and your interests. So social communication is a challenge, and then you might have unusual interests or intensity of those interests. So it ends up kind of affecting development across the lifespan. It's something that we see present along the way. What was once referred to simply as autism is now autism spectrum disorder. She explains the change. The change to autism spectrum disorder as the only label happened in 2013. The group of psychologists that designed these manuals that give us a range of what diagnoses we can make retooled autism. 
So it used to be just autism. We also had something called Asperger disorder. We also had something called pervasive developmental disorder. And in 2013, they combined them all under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. So you still hear Asperger. You still hear pervasive developmental disorder. Some people, especially with Asperger, really identify with that label. It's just that we're not supposed to be giving it as a new diagnosis anymore. Why was the change deemed necessary? Mostly because there was inaccuracy in how those different labels were applied. So there wasn't good reliability across sites and how they were using those terms. And then and we really have come to learn from the research that at the root of this is an issue with social development. As far as what that spectrum looks like... That spectrum could include everyone from your individual who is nonverbal, who may have some self-injury type of behaviors, to someone with very advanced verbal abilities, with average to high IQ, who just has sort of a social impairment that they're struggling with. Dr. Van Hecke adds that while the range is reliable for the diagnosis of autism... For research, it makes it challenging because we have to put in other things into place that will help us know that our individuals in our research are more similar than they are different because it is such a huge range. So is there something physically different in the brain of someone with autism spectrum disorder? The more we studied the brain, it became clear that it really isn't that there's something missing in the brain, that everything you would expect to be there is there, but it's more of an issue of organization in the brain and what we call connectivity these bundles of brain cells that connect the back of your brain to the front of your brain. That really seems to be something that is challenged in autism. What do these brain connectivity issues result in? The way that plays out in behavior is that when you are socially interacting with someone, you need the coordination of all those different areas of your brain. So to do all that at the same time, I need those areas communicating. So we have more and more coalesced into an idea that it's about long-range connections in the brain. But while people with autism have cognitive deficiencies. Conversely, people with autism have many strengths. They can be very detail-oriented and be able to solve puzzles and put things together and understand how things work. And we think that's due to another aspect of their brain development, which is that the short areas, the areas that are close to each other, are more highly connected. So it's areas that are distant having a problem connecting and areas that are close over-connecting. Whether one causes the other, we're not sure. Another aspect of autism that researchers are unclear about to this point is that it's expected by your experiences, negative and positive. At this point in time, we don't always know if we see something in the brain, like that connectivity thing, is that what was there in the beginning or is that a lifetime of autism? Is it their beginning and it's supported because the brain is set up a little bit differently or is it something that developed over time? We're not really sure. But, you know, the brain is a plastic organ, so there's always potential for change. Dr. Van Hecke says there are common characteristics of people diagnosed with autism, regardless of where they are on the spectrum. A core area that really transcends IQ and to some degree verbal communication is that social understanding is different. It's not learned naturally as much as in other people. Children pick up on the way you start a conversation, on the way you make a friend, and our individuals on the spectrum seem to need more concrete instruction to do that. And once you have that, they can. It's just that that doesn't come naturally. It's not kind of picked up via osmosis. Which puts the onus on people not on the autism spectrum to be more empathetic and understanding of those who are. That core of having challenges in interacting with other people, challenges in communicating with other people, that may not reflect really what the person is thinking or feeling. Part of the problem is like the rest of us, assuming because someone doesn't look at me, they don't like me. Or because someone doesn't approach me to talk with me, they don't want to talk with me. And that may not be the case in autism. It's that physically and emotionally, they haven't been taught how to do that and they don't know how to do that. So we need to be better at not assuming. 
It may be that they really do want to communicate with you, but they don't know how. Of course, the question everyone wants answered, especially researchers, what causes autism? The hypothesis now that most people are working on is that it's both a genetic risk, then we have to look at what happens environmentally. And I think that the idea is really that it's probably a shared mechanism. It might be part genetic and then part environmental. But at this point in time, we really don't understand like what the cause might be. Meanwhile, there are things that research shows are not causes, despite common misbeliefs. Number one on that list vaccines. That's something that we can definitely rule out. We have sunk so much money into studying vaccines. It's just kind of going through this again and again. There's good reason why Dr. Van Hecke and others dismiss research that originally connected vaccines as the cause of autism. The original study that looked at vaccines had this theory that it was mercury in a certain vaccine that led to gastrointestinal problems that then kind of propelled the autism forward. And after that study got out, it was then discovered that the author of that study, Andrew Wakefield, had faked his data, not even real data. And the study was withdrawn, he was disbarred, but the damage was done. And so we have this really strong distrust of vaccines that people really are holding on to. Even today, it's challenging for the research community to debunk any relationship between vaccines and autism spectrum disorder. A real challenge with that is that it got into pop culture via a couple of pop culture advocates, and then it exploded from there. And people worry about the things doctors stick into their babies, which is natural and protective. But vaccines is not the answer. Dr. Van Hecke recognizes another reason so many parents continue believing it. Tricky piece of it is the convergence in time when autism symptoms become very obvious and when kids are given vaccines. Those two things are close in time. So we're talking two, two and a half, three years old where there's tons of vaccines happening. And so I think people associate events close in time as being causal of each other, and that's not the case. How is autism treated? Dr. Van Hecke says that while medications can target some of the symptoms, what so far proves to be most effective are other therapies, treatments, and interventions. Early behavioral treatments, early social-emotional treatments, these are things where as a therapist one-on-one with a child, working on skill development, working on emotional connection, working on play, working on language. Language, speech therapy is very effective. Occupational therapy is very effective. So we have what we need. It's just getting families set up. Next, we focused our conversation on teens and young adults with autism spectrum disorder. Because even for average developing young men and women, entering into these life stages presents challenges. Anybody that knows teenagers knows they're a hot mess. I was very curious in brain development and brain plasticity, and I wanted to look at times in life when that was really possible, when the brain was really malleable. And those times are toddlerhood and adolescence. Those are our key points where the brain is reorganizing itself. Dr. Van Hecke says there's a couple of key things happening with developing teens. First, there's what she refers to as a hormonal cascade. So when you think about a teenager and their behavior, there's a reason why they act like a two-year-old. <laughs> They're actually really working hard on setting up their brain to the point of where things are processed in a different area, things are reacted to differently. I mean, it's a very new frontier for the brain. And it's not like it's just an intermediate stage between childhood and adulthood. It's a totally different ballgame that might change then when they're adults. So that hormonal cascade 
grade really, really throws us off. And in addition to biological changes happening in the brains of developing teens... There's that piece that's going on. And at the same time in adolescence, the other big developmental shift is that typically what people are doing is shifting from relying on families to peers. That's your reference group. That's who you looked for help, for support. We more and more rely on our peers and our friends than our families. Now imagine facing these significant biological and social life changes and having autism on top of it. You're grappling with both of those things. You're grappling with all the hormonal cascade, the brain change, everything else that's adolescence, and the increased demands for you to rely on your peers. And you have autism. It's particularly challenging for you. First of all, you may not have the friends to rely on or the skills to have those friends. You may not have the communication to say what's happening with you and how you're feeling. You know, that presents a particularly delicate and risky time for our kids on the spectrum. So is there increased risk of other mental health concerns for teens and young adults diagnosed with autism during these changes and beyond? Yes, we do see more mental health concerns. I would say the more a person becomes aware of their social challenges, the more risky it is. So that's something to think about. These social challenges are very pervasive and very impactful. Pervasive and impactful in what ways? You have the awareness that you're not meeting the milestones that your peers are and that you don't have friends and that you're isolated. That awareness is a risk factor. So if you're not really aware of that and you're a child and you're just bumbling along and playing and whatever, you're kind of protected. But then when you realize, hey, I don't have any friends or hey, nobody likes me or whatever it is, that's the mental health risk is that knowledge. Many of them do know that they have challenges. Dr. Van Hecke cites two specific mental health conditions in teens and young adults diagnosed on the autism spectrum, anxiety and depression. First, does research show increased risk for anxiety? Yes. So it's a challenging thing to pick apart. Was it increased anxiety risk that was there all along? Or is this the case of when we get to adolescence, you have a kid that has been bullied their entire life and they've been ostracized, they have been assaulted, they have been cruelly treated for much of their life. She says in many cases, teens with autism are spared these types of treatment by their peers only because they're ignored, which is another risk factor. It's not a good thing at all for humans to be ignored. We're meant to be around other people. People who have social relationships live longer. They have better health. If you're very, very healthy but don't have any friends, your lifespan will still be short. We need to go out and be with our friends just as much as we need to eat well, which is something to think about. So whether a teen or young adult is treated poorly or completely ignored by their peers, the risk for having anxiety on top of their autism increases because... They are aware of their differences, and then they have this history of either anxiety or bad experiences that predispose them to anxiety, right? So it's a perfect storm of really needing focused help at this time. There's no denying that there are other risk factors. There are sensory challenges, lights are too bright, noises are too loud, those sorts of things, and that puts you in a place of anxiety. But for all of these reasons, the risk for developing anxiety among teens and young adults with autism is significantly higher than among typical teens. In fact, the rate of anxiety is, I don't know, maybe 10% in healthy individuals, and in autism it's about somewhere between 50 and 80%. So it's much, much higher. What about depression? Does research show increased risk for depression among teens and young adults with autism? 
Dr. Van Hecke says yes, but... Still developing. So I think the research on anxiety has been going for quite some time. The research around depression and suicidality is newer to kind of look at that in autism. How do we act on that? Because all of our treatments for depression and our treatments for anxiety were based on people without autism. So will these treatments be helpful or harmful? We don't know. We're still trying to figure that out. She also says that while research shows these risks to be higher, how much higher is still unclear. I'm not quite sure about the exact rate because the research is still in its infancy, but what is starting to come out is that suicidality, I think they have more research on that, and that seems to be at a much higher risk rate than your typically developing population. As far as social outcomes, when there's anxiety or depression on top of an individual's autism, they're often not positive outcomes. Unfortunately, we don't see people achieving their full potential. They're underemployed. They're often not living independently. Many are not able to complete higher education, even if that's something that they would have been academically qualified for. Underuse of their skill sets and severe isolation continuing. And in fact, I think it gets worse because when you're out of school, it's kind of like a drop off the cliff. We have a lot of young adults that sit and hang out in their parents' basement all day and rarely have contact with other people. And while there are some shared outcomes between anxiety and depression, she says depression can present its own unique challenges. That's what we're finding in autism is that depressed individuals are different from depressed individuals who are not autistic. You know, a lot of our understanding of these mental health concerns comes from our own perception of the other person. So do I, as a clinician or a therapist, perceive that in you? And a lot of our cues are based on things like facial expressions. Well, in autism, facial expressions are different. So you can't rely on these kind of traditional indicators. And that's where we really need to do a lot more research. So what can medical professionals do to mitigate the risk of a teen or young adult with autism from developing anxiety or depression. Dr. Van Hecke says medications aren't always the best solution. I know many people on the spectrum who are taking antidepressants, who are taking antipsychotics. I think it's a mixed bag in terms of what you get and whether it's helpful or effective, and I would hesitate. Instead, she advocates addressing the mental health issues by first addressing the social isolation associated with autism. We talk to people who are autistic, many of them report that it's social isolation, that it's not having anyone care for them or get them, that really seems to propel a lot of the risk. If you can address social isolation, can you affect mental health in a sort of indirect route? And that type of help doesn't have to come from medical professionals. It can come from the parents, the peers, the caregivers, the friends, any helping profession. But in order to help them deal with their social isolation, we must first understand that people with autism do want friends and relationships. There was this misconception for a long time that people with autism were happy on their own and that they actually preferred that and that's not the case because we know it's part of our biology that we want other people around us. There's much more research to be done and Dr. Van Hecke is determined to continue working collaboratively with other researchers to find answers. We just finished a CTSI study in December looking at how developing a friendship affects brain structure so that will be coming out probably in a year or so. Meanwhile, Dr. Van Hecke has a takeaway about the difference all of us can make in the life of a teen or young adult with autism by being kind, by being empathetic, and by being a friend. It's kind of ironic because I think in the olden days, people talked about people with autism like they didn't have empathy. So I think we need to really think about as a society, like what are we modeling of 
inclusion and empathy and show that everyone has value and everyone has a place. And for parents of teens and young adults with autism spectrum disorder, there are excellent resources available to you. We have a fantastic autism society in this area. So it's the Autism Society of Southeastern Wisconsin. They really can help people tailor what they might need or can access and help them find that. We're actually pretty resource-rich in Wisconsin. That's Dr. Amy Vaughn Van Hecke, Associate Professor, Department of Psychology, and the Director of the Marquette Autism Clinic at Marquette University. Last summer, we told you about the Periscope Project, a new provider-to-provider initiative aimed at offering perinatal psychiatric expertise and resources for healthcare professionals treating women with behavioral health issues who are or plan to become pregnant. As its first anniversary approaches, it's a great time to refocus our community eye on the Periscope Project to gain insight into its success and growth. Dr. Christina Wickman is Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Obstetrics, and Gynecology and Director of Women's Mental Health at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Medical Director of the Periscope Project. Just prior to the project's launch last July, Dr. Wickman explained the general shortage of psychiatrists across our state, let alone one specializing in treating perinatal and postpartum mothers. So to have three or four perinatal psychiatrists for over 65,000 births in the state of Wisconsin simply just is not enough to be able to cover the services that these mothers and families really need and deserve. Which brings about the critical need for the Periscope Project. Periscope is an acronym for Perinatal Specialty Consult Psychiatry Extension to extend psychiatry services in this perinatal population. And so the project is filling that gap existing between perinatal psychiatrists and healthcare providers for pregnant women needing perinatal or postpartum treatment. Looking back, how does Dr. Wickman characterize the Periscope Project's first year? It's been incredibly successful. We've enrolled almost 300 providers to date. Our year one goal, so through July of 2018, was for 250 providers, so we've really blown past that goal. And those nearly 300 providers have been seeking counsel on a regular basis. We've had about 30 calls per month. Of the providers who have utilized our service and then completed our survey, 100% of them have been satisfied with the care that they are receiving and said that they are going to utilize that information for future patients as well. Has the growth and success of the Periscope Project so far met Dr. Wickman's expectations? Absolutely. When we went into this program, we were really focused on the greater Milwaukee area, but because implementation has really been so smooth, we very rapidly have decided to expand beyond the greater Milwaukee area and are actively targeting other cities around Wisconsin to be able to provide this service really for any health care professional in the state who is caring for a pregnant or postpartum patient. In addition to its initial implementation and participation successes, there's another notable milestone in the first year. Our goal is to get back to providers within that 30-minute time period. Really, since the inception of this project, our callback time has averaged under 10 minutes. Really quick response to our providers, and so they're able to really provide that real-time care, which is phenomenal. Of course, there have been challenges along the way. The biggest challenge really is trying to get in front of really busy physicians. And so we've seen over time that the utilization of the program, the uptick in both enrollment and utilization, happens when I am able to get in front of these providers. They're really able to 
to vet me, but it's difficult to get in front of really busy providers. That's really the biggest issue that we've seen. Have Dr. Wickman and her team needed to make any significant changes in the first year? I'm actually glad that you asked that. So we still remain a provider-to-provider service, but really what we found is that lactation consultants, social workers, home visitors who are caring for these women are identifying that these women are struggling. And so we've opened up our enrollment to include these non-medical professionals and tailor our service to the scope of where they're at. One year later, she says the Periscope project is poised for success going forward. We've had callers from the Fox Valley area as far north as Wausau, as far west as La Crosse, and now we're really targeting our marketing to those communities and really serve any professional caring for perinatal women. And she adds that increased use of technology will help facilitate its growth. Skype, WebEx, trying to connect with these other clinics and healthcare professionals across the state without necessarily having to do the in-person piece. As powerful as that is, it may not be realistic. Coming up next month, the Periscope Project will participate in Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week. Shelby Borkart is the Periscope Project's program coordinator, and she tells us what the national goal of this Awareness Week is. It's to break down that stigma and start the conversation about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Then, the Periscope Project hopes to build on that with its own goal. Our goal is taking that message and directing it to healthcare providers and encourage them to sit down, face their patients, and ask these new and expecting moms how they're really feeling. In addition, to its goal, Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week has a national campaign theme. This year's national campaign is Real Motherhood, No Shame. Getting real about motherhood is healthy for everyone. What's the message behind this year's theme, especially for expectant or postpartum mothers suffering from depression or anxiety disorders? Oftentimes women are comparing themselves to what they see on Facebook, Instagram, or Pinterest, but that false image may cause some women to feel ashamed of how they're feeling or what motherhood looks like for them because it's not meeting that image they're seeing on social media. So this campaign is encouraging moms to show what life is really like and let women know that you're not alone. There is no shame in how you are feeling. So how can moms support Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week using social media? Throughout the week, they're asking moms to post pictures and update their social media status with images and posts that depict the real face of motherhood, and that includes the ups and the downs. Because the Periscope Project offers services to healthcare providers, their theme is a bit different. Simply put, our theme is Ask Her. What's the meaning behind that message? We're encouraging every healthcare provider that sees pregnant and postpartum women to ask questions about her mental health because you don't know how somebody's feeling just by looking at them. Shelby says, of course, there are reliable screening tools to assess a mother's mental health. There are validated screening tools that can be used as a way to start asking these questions. And several national organizations have released recommendations that state providers should screen for depression in pregnant and postpartum women and that they need to have follow-up after screening. It's in that follow-up that the Ask Her component really comes into play. Use a screening tool as a way to start a conversation. Sit down, face your patient, and ask her, tell me why you chose the answers that you did. We want providers to know that they can be the difference maker for women who are struggling. And it all starts by asking her how she's really feeling. Next, Shelby tells us about two national organizations bringing awareness to maternal mental health year-round. First, there's 2020 Mom. 
2020 Moms was the California Mental Health Collaborative, and it's evolved into a national organization. And they are a catalyst for the policy. They do a lot of advocating at the state and national levels, and they're always looking for advocacy opportunities. They're really that big umbrella organization. Under that umbrella is an offshoot known as the Blue Dot Project. Blue Dot campaign all started around one mom who suffered from postpartum depression. She created a simple blue dot with a tiny silver lining around it that recognize you're not alone and there is hope for women. So you can buy these little stickers and stick them wherever. So other moms who know about the Blue Dot campaign realize the scope of mental health for moms and be reminded that they're not alone. Finally, Shelby tells us how the Periscope Project is specifically supporting Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week with its own events. We're starting off the week by co-hosting an event with the Women's Mental Health Interest Group here in the Department of Psychiatry at MCW. Katie O'Connor, who's an art therapist, will be presenting to this group of early psychiatrists. And then everybody in the audience is going to have a chance to actually do some art therapy to see for themselves how that applies to pregnant and postpartum women. Dr. Wickman's going to be discussing maternal mental health with the clinic up in Green Bay. And throughout the week, we're going to several clinics in the greater Milwaukee area, dropping off materials and telling them, ask her. Ask her those questions. If you want to learn more about Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week, you could learn more about the national campaign by visiting 2020mom.org or theblue.project.org. And for healthcare providers, of course, we invite all healthcare providers who have questions regarding the mental health or substance use disorders of pregnant and postpartum women to call us. Call the Periscope Project. You can learn more about the Periscope Project on our website. We'll be sure to post links on our CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. But now we've reached the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Once again, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Amy Vaughn Van Hecke, Associate Professor, Department of Psychology, and the Director of the Marquette Autism Clinic at Marquette University. Dr. Christina Wickman, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Obstetrics, and Gynecology, and Director of Women's Mental Health at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Medical Director of the Periscope Project, and Shelby Borkhart, Program Coordinator for the Periscope Project. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.